0: So, I've got some friends that love to stir stuff up just to get a reaction. You you know anybody like that? Like they'll say something or do something or put something online and then just kind of walk away and just see what happens. I have this one friend who loves doing that kind of stuff. I was on a trip with him years ago and we rented a car. And when I say we rented a car, I mean I rented a car. And I got the keys to the rental vehicle and there was two of them and they were fastened together with the band and there was a tag describing the car and then on the back of the tag it said do not separate the keys from the band. So this friend of mine grabs the keys and cuts it to separate them just to get a reaction out of me. Now I like I'm usually even keeled. I'm very cherub-like in my demeanor but every once in a while I can get riled up and I've heard it's quite entertaining to watch. And he um, he tapped into that. So I said, why? Why would you do that? And his response was, well, I'm a fruit tester. I'm like, what? He goes, well, you know, in the Bible it says the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I'm seeing if your fruit is ripe. And I'm like... <laughs> Your face is about to be right. Why, why would you do that? No, I, I get it. There is a little bit of, like, there is a little bit of enjoyment in that kind of thing. Like when I go visit my family in Michigan, I love to just kind of stir up my nieces and nephews just before they're going to go home, send them back to my brothers all worked up, just because because I can and I'm the older brother. This weekend, however, I want to turn to a passage in the New Testament Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, that actually encourages the stirring up of one another. Hebrews, which is actually a letter, is, is peculiar. Uh, there's not a lot of agreement on who actually wrote it. Some say it was the Apostle Paul. Others say, no, no, it wasn't the Apostle Paul. It was somebody else. And there's not even a lot of agreement on who it was written to. Some say it was originally written to Jews. Others say Jewish Christians. Some say Gentiles. So there's a bit of mystery surrounding it. But amidst all the mystery surrounding the letter itself, uh, concerning the author and the original recipients, it's rich in substance concerning Christ. Christology, who Jesus is, what Jesus actually did. So today I want to focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as some are in the habit of, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. Something I notice immediately as I read these passages is that the author uses us and we, but he never uses you. Most of the New Testament is written with the community of faith or the church as a whole in mind, not simply individuals. When I make statements like, my faith is just a personal thing, that's a bit incongruent with the scriptures, because the scripture is more about we than it is about me, which is why each October we pause uh, for an emphasis called Operation Love Your Neighbor, in which we collectively and intentionally seek to fulfill the words of Jesus when he said, love your neighbor with, with all that you've got. Y- years ago, I uh, felt this nudge, I believe it was, it was from God. I felt the nudge while I was reading a history book about the American Revolutionary War. Now, as I read that book, I kept seeing a phrase over and over and over. And the phrase was, the glorious cause. The glorious cause is what the colonists referred to when they were talking about the war they they didn't call it the American Revolutionary War that was used by historians to describe an event but when they were in the thick of it when they were fighting it they referred to the war as the glorious cause and it was the glorious cause that kept them going when things seemed impossible we're part of something bigger than ourselves and so as i thought about that phrase the glorious cause i thought to myself, like, what's, what's the glorious cause of the Christian church? Because C- I've got to believe it's more than existing. I- I've got to believe that the glorious cause of the Christian church is more than paying the bills and keeping the lights on. I believe that the glorious cause of the Christian church is even more as important as it is than gathering together on the weekend, sitting in rows, singing songs, and hearing a sermon, which is important because in that same passage I just read, verse 25, the author says, and don't neglect meeting together. It's important, but it doesn't stop there. See, you and I, we're all part of something bigger. We're all... Part of a glorious cause. As I searched the Bible, I stumbled upon Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. The apostle Paul writing here is speaking about what's really important in our faith. And he writes, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, that's strong language, the only thing that counts, is faith expressing itself through love. I mean, that, that's the glorious cause of the church. Our faith Expressing itself in tangible acts of goodness, love, and service. The word faith, it doesn't just mean to believe something. See, the word faith means to have trust or strong confidence in a person in this case. Now, one of the ways the early Christian church formalized what they believed uh, was to develop a series of creeds. These creeds served as a source of encouragement These creeds defined who they would become. And the word creed means, I believe and trust. That's what the word actually means. So the most famous of those, many of you know it, is the Apostles' Creed, I've got it up here on the screen. Uh the early Christian church would often recite the Apostles' Creed as a source of encouragement and a reminder of what it is they trust in. So we're going to join the early Christian church this morning. I'm going to invite you into the sermon and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I grew up reciting the creed week after week after week after week. And I loved reciting the creed because it meant that church was one step closer to being done, right? So we read this creed, this Substance of our faith, and we read things like, "I believe in the Holy Spirit," "I believe in the Communion of Saints," "I believe in the forgiveness of sins," "the resurrection of the body." I mean, think about that. I mean, like, I, I believe that my sins are forgiven, regardless of what I've done. I believe that someday I'm going to have life eternal. I mean, I, mean I, I feel like that that those statements are more than wrote memorization more than just reciting like when i say those words i mean i hope that i that I feel them like i want to i want to bring that second page back up let's bring the creed back up page 2 so we're going to read that second half i believe starting with i believe in the holy spirit and i want us just for a minute just for fun let's read it As if we actually believed it. It, You ready? I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And life everlasting. Amen. I mean that's what we believe. And that faith. That belief. Produces in me. Produces in us. I hope. This desire to express God's love in the world. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And when you hear love, don't hear, like, don't hear feelings. Hear action. Express God's love in the world through tangible acts of good works. See, you and I, the calling is to stir up one another to that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, there's a progression. Uh, It begins with drawing near to God. It moves to holding on to hope and then it ends with the challenge to stir one another up to good works. Because listen, it always starts with God. It always starts with drawing near to God. Back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water one of the values that we have as a church is that we want to continually take next steps towards that's just another way of saying draw near to god in our life, in our actions, continually draw near to God because he's the source of our faith and love. Like, we're not doing this because of, like, some humanistic venture so we feel good about ourselves. There's a source, there's a reason, there's a purpose behind all of it. Now, in this chapter, the author is reaching back into the Old Testament, back into the practice of the ancient Israelites when he references the temple. When the Israelites were freed from slavery... They wandered the desert for 40 years and they carried with them the temple of God. It was a tent that was set up everywhere they camped and it was believed that the presence of God dwelt in the tent. When the Israelites reached the promised land, the land of Canaan, a permanent structure was built and deep inside the permanent structure was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. And there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Because the riffraff couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. The average person could not go into the presence of God. There was only one person that could go into the presence of God. That was the high priest, and he could only enter one time a year. But because of what Jesus did, through his death on the cross... Through his broken body, his shed blood, he opened the way, the scriptures say, through his body. He became the high priest. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, you and I now have access to God that was previously unavailable. The gates have been flung wide open. The curtain has been removed and torn. And you and I can approach God. We became his children with an all-access pass. When I have work that I really need to focus on, I put a sign on my office door that says, do not disturb. It's actually this literal sign you're looking at right now. I put it on red paper because psychology tells us that red's an angry color and I want people to know, like before you knock on this door, somebody better be dying because I need to focus. So if that sign's on the door, it's not on there a lot, but when it's on, do not disturb. Now each summer... We, uh, at Northbrook, we hire a couple of teenagers to uh, do yard stuff like pull weeds and do things the other facilities guys don't want to do. And so this year, one of the teenagers we hired was, was my daughter because she knew a guy. So she was here working part of the summer just pulling weeds, doing stuff like that. And she always kept her purse and her keys and her water in my office. And she would come in sometimes, and even if the do not disturb sign was on the door, she would just walk in. No knocking, nothing. She just opened the door and she'd just walk in whenever she wanted to, completely ignoring the sign. You want to know why? Because she's my kid and I'm her dad. And she has unlimited access to me. The do not disturb sign is irrelevant to her because she's my kid. The barrier that was represented by the curtain is gone. Like you and I, the scriptures say we're children of God. The do not disturb sign has been removed. You and I have unlimited free and open access to God. We have confidence like an 18-year-old girl has walking into her daddy's office to enter into the presence of God. And as we draw near with confidence to God, we hold on to that hope that he's promised. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. You and I, we're bringers of hope. Hope is the substance of what it is that we believe. Hebrews chapter 11, if you skip one page further, the writer states, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope and faith are the substance of what it is that we believe. Again, belief isn't just attributed to a set of ideas. Belief is trust in a person. We trust in Christ. Now, I meet lots of hopeless people. People whose lives have been been shaken. What I believe the world needs, what I believe a hopeless world needs is a hope-filled church. Not a judgmental church, not a legalistic church, not a self-righteous church, not a discouraged church, but a hopeful church. Because hope is our stability. Hope reminds me, That at the end of the story, God wins. That God does come through. That he provides and he shapes and he guides. That he's always with me. And so from that place of hope, let us stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Now that word stir up is a funny word. It doesn't mean to stir like you stir soup. The word stir up actually means, in its literal sense, to irritate. Irritate one another. It also can mean a strong jab given to someone so they respond. I don't like being out at night. Uh, I am not a night person at all. Uh, My life for the day ends at nine o'clock. I don't think anyone should be out past nine, particularly me. But on occasion, I find myself in a situation where my wife and I will be out with somebody and it will be past nine o'clock and I will feel it. And because I feel it, I can't hide it. And my wife says, I, I'm very easy to read. Like when I begin to turn into a pumpkin as the clock strikes nine, it's very noticeable. And to my wife, it's also very embarrassing because she thinks it's disrespectful to the people that we're with. So when she notices around nine that I'm starting to fade, she will kick me under the table to stir me up. That's what the word stir up means. It's an action to provoke a response. So the Apostle Paul is quite literally saying in a positive sense, let us be so irritating to each other that we won't get relief until we express God's love in the world through good works. I mean, we, we all stir up each other to something anyway. I mean, some of us are more subtle about it than others, but we're always stirring something up, every single one of us. So what is it that you stir up? what do your conversations look like what 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 do you talk about when you're out with your friends or your church friends or you're over at Starbucks or Panera or Perk Place what's the conversation like is it about the weather i mean is it about politics i mean cuz that's always life giving right i mean is it about pastor mike's sermon and he spoke six weeks in a row i hope pastor john shows up pretty soon like what what do we talk about i was I was at Panera Bread some time ago, I was working and I was facing the wall so I didn't get distracted and so there was a group behind me and I couldn't see them but I could hear them and they were talking rather loudly about their church and everything they said was like negative and bad and so I just kind of leaned over just to make sure that it wasn't anybody from Northbrook, just kind of leaned back, just wanted to check, it wasn't. Thankfully, but they were saying horrible things about their church and their pastor. And like, if I had the, the guts, I would, have, I would have turned around and said, like, that's not helping anything. If it's that bad, go somewhere else. I mean, I don't think that honors God. What if the conversation was, your life's not perfect, but, but how, like, how can we this week, how can we do something awesome in Jesus' name? How can we do something loving in the world this week? Let's just think of some ideas. What can we do today? Because here's what I've observed. I've observed that most people want to do good. Most people want to do things that are meaningful. Like there's there's something in us, even when we're children, that that we want to do good in the world. When my kids were, were younger, I think my daughter was like maybe in fourth grade, my son was like maybe kindergarten, we decided as a family to start sponsoring some kids in Africa. And so a picture came in the mail from this organization of this kid we we're going to sponsor. So we got the kids together and just wanted to explain to them, invite them into what we were doing and why. Because it's part of my parenting. I want them to do, be kids that grew up and do, do good for others. And so we showed her the picture, showed our kids a picture of this little girl we we're going to sponsor and explained to her why we're doing it. And I said, do you guys understand? Yep, dad. And then my daughter just disappeared. I'm like, well, clearly that was effective, right? Where did she go? And a couple of months later, she comes downstairs, and her hands are filled with cash. She'd emptied her piggy bank, and she said, Dad, I want to help that little girl. There's something intrinsically wired in us. We want to live a life that matters. We want to do good in the world. Every single one of us has that in us. And I know some people who have taken drastic steps, drastic pay cuts to go do something that matters, which is good. But it doesn't always have to be that sensational. I read a book years ago called Halftime. The author's name was Bob Buford. He was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire who made his money in the cable industry. And about halfway through his life, he just, he wanted to change, so he became a philanthropist. And kind of the, kind of the concept of the book is that the first half of your life is about the success. The first half of your life is about building wealth and buying a home and raising your kids and getting them ready for college and saving money to pay for college and moving up the ladder in your career, in your job. He said, but at some point during the second half of your life, you're a bit more concerned about significance, about leaving a legacy, about doing good in the world than you are about success. Now, I don't think life is as simple as that. Like, I don't think you get to it like halfway and then, okay, I'm switching. But I do believe he has a point. But what does that actually mean? To live a life of, of significance, to do good? Because for some reason we think that it has to mean the big, the dramatic, and the sensational. Pastor Mike, I just want to do something that matters with my life. Pastor Mike, I want to change the world. As parents, pastors, teachers, professors, we often tell kids, you can be whatever you want. You can change the world. And when we say that, we're lying to them. Change the world? Like, that's a bit deceptive. Very few things have actually changed the whole world. Now, maybe... Maybe your kid or your grandkid will become the next Carl Benz, the guy who actually invented the automobile, which actually changed the world. Or maybe you're raising the next Jeff Bezos, because Amazon changed the world. But I'm probably not going to change the world. You're probably not going to change the world, and neither are your children. Because what happens is, we set our sights so big, and when it doesn't happen, we get discouraged. I think it's time to change the narrative. Instead of changing the world, what if we set our sights on changing a world? What if we set our sights on changing someone's world? I mean, I think that's the essence of the gospel. Is that we, in our search for significance, desire to change a world a life, a person, or two, or three, or ten, or fifty. Because see, the big life-changing things usually happen in the seemingly small and undramatic. I know a guy here at Northbrook and he was telling me a story because it's Operation Love Your Neighbor about a neighbor that he had and this neighbor uh, was not very good at taking care of their lawn. And he would get frustrated because he felt like their lawn made his house look bad. And so he didn't know what to do. He said, I was going to go over there and just say, hey, can I mow it? But he didn't want to come across as the judgmental neighbor. And so for a while he did nothing. But finally he said, he got the courage to go over. He knocked on the door and he said, hey, I uh, just want to know, can I help you? Can I, can I mow your lawn for you? I'd like to do that for you. And he said, the woman that answered the door began to cry. And she's basically said, thank you. I'm going through a divorce right now and I don't even know how to use the lawnmower. And so for the rest of that year, this guy would just, as he mowed his lawn, mowed her lawn. And he said he was reminded of Colossians chapter three, verse 23. He was doing it as unto the Lord. Like that changed someone's world. That small act changed the world of an individual. I believe That the greatest ministry opportunity that we all have is the person standing directly in front of us. Yeah, but I want to do something significant. Maybe doing something significant is not about changing your current situation. Maybe it's simply about changing your attitude. Years ago, um, when I first went into ministry, I worked at a very small church. I was a youth pastor and I loved it. But they couldn 't pay me enough to live on, so I had to get a second job and so I got a job in the public school system as a substitute teacher now in middle school and high school. What was frustrating about that for me is I wanted to work full time in the church and ministry, and i didn 't want to divide my time between the school district and church, and I had a bad attitude towards it. I mean, I took the job because it was flexible, I had a college degree, and that was all they required and so i I did it. I was like, I just don't, didn't want to be there. I wanted to go work with teenagers. I wanted to work in the church. And, but then I noticed some of my friends who were also youth pastors in bigger churches that could pay them full time, they were doing all they could to pull strings to get into the public school, to have lunch with their students and hang out with kids. And there was almost like this nudge on my shoulder. What they're trying to do, you're doing and you're getting paid for it. Change your attitude. So I did. Now, it wasn't as easy as I'm going to make it sound, but instead of hanging out in the teacher's lounge at lunch, I actually went down to the cafeteria and ate lunch with some of the kids in my youth group. And some of their friends would say, who's that guy eating lunch with you? They'd say, oh, he's our youth pastor. You should come check out our youth group. And I would stand in the hallway during, la- during period change, and i just talk to kids, and kids would walk by and say, hey, Pastor Mike. I'm like, I don't think you should call me that here, but, you know... Mr. Blondie's fine. And the friends would say, who's that? And they'd say, oh, that's our youth pastor. You should come check out our youth group. And slowly, our youth group began to grow. Like, I didn't change my situation. I just changed my attitude towards what I was already doing. So over the next few weeks, I hope that we can stir one another up to love and good works. Now, It doesn't end in November. It's not like, okay, November 1st hits. We're like, stop loving our neighbor now. It's over. I hope this is simply the precursor to the rest of our year. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. We've created lots of opportunities this month for you to express your faith in love. If you've got one of those pamphlets you were handed when you walked in, I'm going to ask you to pull that out right now. I'm just going to ask you to take a moment um, and just take, take a look at that. We've done all the heavy lifting for you. All all you've got to do is like show up for something, sign up for something. So take a look at that. And maybe maybe the Lord is just kind of nudging you. Hey, here's one small way you can make a huge difference in the life of somebody. So just take a look at that first. That's our next step for the week. Just take a look at that and see if the Lord might be prompting you to do something. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for your sacrifice that you have given us this incredible access to the Father. And because we have this incredible access to the Father, would you help us to live our faith, live that, that what we trust in through tangible acts of love and good works. Or may we be a church that is active in doing good in the world. I thank you for every opportunity you give us. I ask you to lead us. I ask you to guide us.